In the fall of 2014, the Seattle Seahawks began a new season as the defending Super Bowl champions. The team had lost a few players, but for the most part, they maintained their spine, their core. Um, and even though they started their season off last year with a number of wins, 10 games into the season, they were 6-4 and four and had just lost to the Kansas City Chiefs. Things were not looking good. Even their wins were unconvincing. And then something happened after that loss to the Kansas City Chiefs. Rumors of a locker room explosion, confrontation, dirty laundry aired, divisive attitudes called out, heated, honest discussion, and those who were unwilling to change were cut loose. <coughs> Percy Harvin. Okay. And at long last, there was reconciliation amongst this team. What emerged was a galvanized, unified team, a group of guys who stopped overlooking their problems and started dealing with them head-on through confrontation, through forgiveness, and through restoration. And that team went on to win the remainder of their games and to go on to the Super Bowl for a second year in a row where they ran into Deflategate. Okay, enough. <clears throat> for the past few months, we have been working through Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. The church was a huge collection of people of different backgrounds, ethnicities, social standings, and education. But the one thing that galvanized this diverse group of people together was faith in the Lord Jesus. Each one of them had found forgiveness, new life, and a new family in and through Jesus. Eighteen months after Paul left Corinth to go plant and strengthen other churches, he heard news from Corinth. Reports, some via letter, some via word of mouth, and the reports he heard were not good. The church in Corinth had forgotten who they were when Jesus reached down and pulled them out of the sewers, out of the gutter of their, uh, their minds and of their lives. And they had become arrogant and proud, and it was ripping their fellowship apart. So Paul begins his letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 by reminding this church that they are, even in all of their dysfunction, the church of God in Corinth through Jesus. They are saints by calling through the name of Jesus. And Paul blesses them with grace and peace. He thanks God for blessing this church with spiritual gifts to be the church in Corinth. And once he reestablishes their identity, he begins to confront the issues and the people who are tearing that unity apart. Through the first four chapters, we have seen Paul confront this church's arrogance and their seeking after worldly wisdom instead of the way of the cross. He's been dealing mostly in the realm of ideas and beliefs. As we enter into chapter 5, though, this evening, we're going to shift from seeing Paul dealing with just ideas and beliefs to dealing with specific examples. So let's turn our attention there now as we stand together, and I'll, I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 5. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You've become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. 
For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus. I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Jesus, we confess as we come to this passage that this is a tough one. It, in one sense, is inconceivable that something like this would happen. It is confusing in some of the language that Paul uses. And we humbly come before you, not wanting to skip over difficult passages. And we ask you, by the power of your Spirit, that you would open this word to us. And that you would speak to us. And that you would show us how even something like this could matter to us today. So help us to be fertile ground for your seed to land on. Help us to have open hearts and minds. Encourage to obey what it is you're calling us into. Amen. You may be seated. So tonight, uh, even though we're focusing on the first five verses of 1 Corinthians 5... Um, they really all go together. All of chapter 5, which is 13 verses, are one succinct idea. For the sake of preaching, you know, I, just, I didn't want to bite off too much and like, have this thing run an hour and a half. So what I'm going to do is break it up, and I'm sure you'll be fine with that. Okay. So what we're going to do is preach verses 1 through 5 today, and then when we come back and, and revisit 1 Corinthians in a couple weeks, I'll be picking up the rest of the chapter. Okay? And what I'm going to focus on this week is the attitude that... Paul is talking about. He's pointing out an attitude that the Corinthians are having, and he's suggesting a different attitude. And then the next time we get together, we're going to focus on the action or inaction. The Corinthians have not taken action against this brother, and so Paul is going to suggest an action, and we're going to look at that in more depth the next time. Now, chapter 5, of course, not rocket science, flows seamlessly out of chapter 4, where Paul was confronting them on their arrogance. The Corinthians had been acting like they were so spiritually mature. They were thinking of themselves as somehow already having arrived at the pinnacle of their spiritual power. But one thing we see in Paul and all the biblical writers, including Jesus, whose words are recorded, is that you cannot divorce beliefs with behaviors. We cannot divorce beliefs and behaviors. And that's what the Corinthians were doing. Like, they had this high view of themselves as super spiritual, powerful people, but their life was not reflecting the way of Christ. Now, Paul had heard a report that was absolutely baffling. He's heard that there's immorality amongst the Corinthians and such extreme immorality that it would even seem outrageous to the pagans who were known for their lax sexual views. This word immorality in Greek, of course, is porneia, which is where we get the word pornography and other such derivative words. In Greek, it carried a wide range of meaning surrounding the idea of sexual immorality. Sex outside of marriage, adultery, prostitution, unfaithfulness, and general sexual acts outside the bounds of religious, societal, or civil law. So this wasn't just a Christian word, porneia. This was a word to Greeks and... the whole land there would have understood this. Now, in particular, incest would have surely made the list of definitions. And that is what is going on here in Corinth. A man who was part of their church 
was having an ongoing, the grammar tells us that it was ongoing, an ongoing sexual relationship with a woman who is described as his father's mother. Because of lack of other um, words in that sentence, we are pretty sure it wasn't his biological mother. Uh, So he doesn't have the Oedipus complex thing going on, but it was most likely his stepmother. And we can tell, uh, most likely, she's still married to his father, but regardless, under the law, it would have been incest anyway. Paul says that what was happening in their church was so bad, it was unacceptable even outside the church in the pagan world. And that's pretty bad for what we know about Corinth. Here's a common saying in the culture of Corinth in Rome. Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, but wives to bear legitimate children. This was the accepted thinking of an affluent man in the Roman world. Of course, you could never just have adulterous affairs out in the open, but it was common knowledge and it was a colloquialism that that's how people lived. I mean, what, it was just wide open. Even before Paul's day, the Greek writer Aristophanes coined the verb, so he made up a word, you know, like how we've made up, uh, I googled it. You know, that used to not be a, a verb until Google and all that. He made up a verb called Corinthiazo, uh, to act like a Corinthian. And it was to reinforce this reputation that the Corinthians were exceptionally lax in their sexual Uh, immorality. As lax as the sexual boundaries were in first century Corinth, there were still certain taboos and laws. In fact, the law against blatant adultery and incest were not just civil offenses, but they fell under criminal law. Here's how bad incest was to them. In Roman law, there was a statute of limitations of five years. So, prosecutor, once he heard of a crime, had five years to bring that crime before the court, right? Uh, After five years, you're outside the statute of limitations, you could go free. But in the case of incest, the Roman law said there is no statute of limitations. You can get tried. If I find out about this 20 years later, you can be tried for incest. Paul gets on the congregation for allowing this sin to go unchecked within the church. And it's not like they're just ignoring the sin going on. On the other extreme, the church in Corinth is actually boasting about it. As part of the church universal, Paul says he is with them in spirit. And when he says that, he's not talking about like, I don't know, like your niece's wedding is next summer and you can't make it, but I'm with you in spirit. You know how we say that sometimes when we really just cop out for not being somewhere? Um, But when Paul says... I'm with you in spirit, it's, it's more powerful than that. Paul has such a high view of the mystery of the church that he believes we are united across vast distances of geography and time and culture through the spirit. So for example, when we partake of communion each Sunday, we believe that we somehow are mysteriously communing with the risen and reigning Jesus, that even though we come up in lines and we're taking communion by intention, that we're communing with each other, but also we believe that we're communing with the wider church throughout the world. So Paul is saying, I am in your midst, and I have already handed down judgment, even though he's writing this probably from Ephesus. Now, for a moment, I'm going to leave our focus on attitude, and I've got to give you a little bit of action, because I would feel 
what would be pastoral malpractice to not unpack this giving over to Satan line? Have you ever wondered what that means? Uh, I just feel like if I didn't touch on that subject, you'd leave here like totally frustrated. So, okay. <laughs> what on earth does it mean that Paul suggests that they hand this man over to Satan? Let's begin with the terms flesh and spirit. He says, he, he says he's going to turn this man over to Satan so that his flesh might be destroyed so he might be saved in the spirit. Flesh and spirit, common distinctions in Paul's uh, writings. Uh, and if you're familiar with the book of Romans, you'll see this type of language all over. And first I want to talk about what flesh and spirit doesn't mean for Paul. He does not mean that the flesh or the physical body is just a shell that our spirit inhabits for the time being. That's actually more akin to Greek thinking. Quite the opposite. Paul and Jews and Christians alike have a high view of the body and a high view of the created order. God created us and these bodies and calls them very good. In fact, the hope of Christianity is that when Jesus brings his kingdom in full, the dead will be rise to what? Resurrected bodies in flesh. So what does he mean then? In general, what he means is that human beings are made up of spirit and flesh. Paul uses the term flesh as a technical term to refer to our carnal nature. Okay? Flesh for Paul is a term referring to our carnal, kind of animalistic nature. The flesh, then, represents not so much our physical bodies, but our lives when they are lived without regard for God and his design for creation and his design for worship. Flesh for Paul, when he's talking about the difference between flesh and spirit, means the life lived without regard for God and without regard for uh, the purpose we were created, to worship God. The spirit, on the other hand, was Paul's technical term to describe the human life lived in alignment with God's plan for creation and worship. So when we're living in the spirit, Paul, uh, when Paul talks like that, it's we are living in alignment with God in the purpose of, uh, of what we were created to be, worshipers of God. The man committing incest was living in the flesh, not the spirit. Paul says that the best thing for him is to send him out of the church and into the world, into the realm where the Satan or the accuser has sway. Why? So the man's flesh might be destroyed. Not so the man might be destroyed, but so that the man's flesh, his carnal nature, his sinful nature might bring him to rock bottom and so that he might come to his senses like the story of the prodigal son. If the prodigal son who said, Dad, I basically wish you were dead, I want my inheritance now. If the dad would have said, that's cool, you can live in the in-law cottage and we'll cohabitate. The son may not have ever come to a need to repent. Instead, he releases the son out of his fellowship. The son goes to a distant land, squanders it, hits rock bottom. This Jewish kid is now eating out of the troughs of unkosher pigs. He comes to his senses and realizes, I am lower than low. I've made a huge mistake. I'm coming home. And so Paul's idea here is to send this man out so that he hits rock bottom. And if you've, yeah, I come from a family uh, of addicts. If you've ever dealt with uh, addiction or, or anything like that, you know that everyone just saying it's okay all the time makes it worse. And sometimes what we need is to actually have an experience with bottom 
before we can start coming up again. That's what Paul is saying here. Paul chooses this action, and you need to hear this, not to punish this man. Paul is just a man like anybody else. Paul is not this man's father. Okay? He, he's, he's not trying to punish the man, but he does this in hopes of restoration of this man. Now, we established earlier that incest was a criminal offense under Roman law. To bring charges against the son in the Roman method would have led to banishment, probably on an island. Doesn't sound too bad because we like our independent lives and we like islands. Okay? At least I like Hawaii and that's what I always picture. But in the Roman world, this would have meant destruction, a loss of family name, a loss of dignity. It was basically a death sentence to someone who was banished to an island. You have none of your social connections in a world that was all about social connections. It made a person basically like the walking dead, not like the zombie, but just like, yeah, I'm breathing and I'm alive, but I really have no family anymore. I've got no place in the world. There's... When you're banished on an island in the Roman method, there's no opportunity for reconciliation. There's no opportunity for repentance. So notice that Paul does not say, bring this man to Roman court. No, Paul wants this man to repent and to be brought back into hell. And notice that Paul, who had been a Jewish rabbi, a Pharisee before he was a Christian, did not say to the church, try this man under the Jewish system. Jewish law, you know what it says about incest? To stone the man. You don't get much chance to back out and to repent and to have reconciliation after you're stoned to death. Okay? So Paul is not trying to punish this man. He's trying to discipline the man so that he has an opportunity to come to reconciliation and redemption. Now, all this talk about the man and being handed over to Satan has distracted us from the thrust of the passage. Here's the interesting part to me. Paul does not address the man directly in his letter. Like, for Paul, he's more frustrated with the church than he is frustrated with this man's sin. Just an interesting aside I'm just thinking of now is that the desert fathers and mothers, you can, there's these wonderful pithy sayings, they're kind of proverbial, but the desert fathers and mothers, the more mature they were in the faith, the less grievous sin surprised them. Like sometimes we hear about uh, some crazy things that go on in our world and, you know, I can't believe this happened. But the more mature these people got, the less, you know what? It didn't surprise me at all. Because they've looked deep into their own hearts. And we all know what we're capable of at our worst. And so for Paul, he's not so hung up on this man's sin. He knows it's got to be dealt with. But what he is ticked off about is the malpractice at the hands of the church. Instead of mourning this sin in their midst, they're puffed up. Instead of their hearts breaking for this man who is entwined in deep dysfunction, they're arrogantly proud. And this is where I want to turn and focus on their attitude. A brother in Christ is openly committing at least incest, most likely adultery as well, with his father's wife. And there are two attitudes on the table in this letter. The attitude of the Corinthians, which is proud arrogance, and the attitude of Paul, which is mournful sorrow. We're going to take each one of these in turn and ask the question, why? Why would you be arrogant about this? Why would you be mourning about this? It's a good question, like, Why would the Corinthians be proud? 
that this man is doing these things with his father's mother. Seriously, what is there to be proud of? It seems that the church was so full of spiritual pride that they viewed themselves above the old and restrictive laws of their pagan and Jewish institutions. Those laws are for people of the world. And we passed out of the world. We are people saved by grace and above the law of mere mortals. It sounds outrageous on one level, but I have witnessed this time and time again. People want something to be true, so they play the, that was the age of law, but this is the age of grace card. As if by following Jesus, we're no longer in the world anymore. The Corinthians are boasting that they are above the outdated morals of their fathers. But Paul calls them out, saying, you should be in mourning. Your heart should be breaking. Why? Because you're complicit, church. You're complicit in allowing sin to go unchallenged. The hurt, the person, um, it, it, it's hurting the person living in sin, and it's hurting everyone that they touch. How can this man, think about this, how can this man ever come to repentance and reconciliation if his church is saying, it's all right, it's okay, what you're doing is fine. Why would you ever think you had to get your act together if everyone who says that they're followers of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, is saying, this is cool, we're proud of you. Break those old chains of tradition. In reality, his adulterous incest is extremely harmful. It's harmful to his own father. Can you imagine this poor man? The fact that this horrible sin is out in the open meant that the father was living in deep public shame, let alone living with the sting of such betrayal. And my guess, this is only a guess, the reason why the father hasn't brought his boy to Roman court is because he probably loves him too much, knowing what the consequences would be. The relationship was harmful to the stepmother and to the son. You know, what goes on between consenting adults is not always good, even if it feels good at the moment. I mean, we're kind of like, yeah, we know that, but I mean, just look at the stuff on, on TV. Look at the stuff, the movies that are coming out. What is this? Uh, oh, there's a new one coming out that's going to be this big, like, wife swap kind of thing. And it's just like a comedy. Really? Oh, but if consenting adults say it's okay, it must be okay. No. No, there's always consequences. Unfaithfulness always has consequences. When the newness of that relationship wears off, how do these two people live with themselves? The guilt and shame. I slept with my stepmom. I destroyed my dad's life. I don't really love her anymore. It was fun at the time. Now what? And of course, the sin has eternal consequences. Unrepentant sin can't be forgiven. Like, God will forgive anything, but if you don't ask for forgiveness if you don't think it, you need forgiveness, <laughs> he's not going to be like, make you be forgiven. Kind of defeats the purpose. The problem was saying, you're okay, I'm okay, as long as we're happy. That once we declare sin a badge of pride, we totally take away the need for repentance. We cut off the lifeline of forgiveness. Now I opened with a reference to the Seattle Seahawks locker room after their loss to the Kansas City Chiefs. There were issues between the players on the team, issues that were left to fester for too long, people taking sides in the locker room. But after that loss, enough was enough. They couldn't just hide the elephant under the carpet anymore. 
a few of the key leaders confronted those teammates who were causing the problems. Some of them confessed, owned up to their bad attitudes. Some of them didn't and were tossed. And the result was hell. That's why Paul is so upset with the church. When a Christian brother or sister or anybody, not even just a Christian, but he's talking about the church here. When a Christian is deep in a sinful habit or deep in a sinful practice, they're blind. I mean, by the time, think about it, we do this all the time. Uh, They've likely figured out a way to rationalize their behavior already. So it is, they're kind of blind to perspective, and it is the loving duty of the church then to come alongside in a very respectful, humble way and say, What you're doing is not good. What you're doing is not healthy. You're hurting yourself. You're hurting other people. In generations past, I would say the vast popular uh, majority view amongst Western Christians was that God was so holy that he's unapproachable, he's exacting, he's hard, and he's judging. Then there was a shift. And people figured out, well, that's not the whole picture of God. That's an extreme view. But but there was a shift in, in in a swing and the popular view of God swung probably right through the truth, which is in the middle, all the way to the other side. And in this view, Jesus is kind of this benign figure who has really high standards if you read, like, Sermon on the Mount. Uh, but in the end, when push comes to shove, he's kind of a big softie who says, it's all right, you tried really hard. And by the way, I think that our view of atonement, so what actually happened on the cross, that's what we call atonement, I think our view of atonement directly affects how we picture God and how we picture sin. If we think that the primary metaphor for describing atonement is that Jesus ransomed us from our captivity or took our place on the cross, substituting his life for ours, it's going to allow us to hold both of these extremes. On the one hand, uh, we could view atonement as cold, and matter of fact. It's a, transi- it's a transaction like, you're a sinner, you're enslaved to sin, and your sin debt, you can't escape it, and if you don't have Jesus, you're in trouble, but if you pray to him and ask him to come into your heart, you're fine. On the other hand is the substitutionary model, where Jesus died on the cross, trading his life for ours. The good news is, we're free, and to show our gratitude for that freedom, we should live a life of obedience. But in the end... Does the obedience part really matter? And the, tra- the transaction is already made. So, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, which is a kind of sentimental, it's okay, transaction kind of love. Both of those methods, by the way, of viewing atonement, ransom, and penal substitution are totally orthodox, they are good, they need to be in our atonement theology. But if you take just those two metaphors without the bigger picture, you end up with an atonement theology that is extremely self-centered and something that reflects more my issues and your issues than the biblical picture of God. See, Jesus died and rose to forgive us and to rescue us from sin and death. That is for sure. But he did more than that. And that's where I, I, I constantly want to preach a bigger gospel than some, sometimes we hear uh, or what I grew up with. See, Jesus wants to give us new life, full human life, the life we were created for. And that's a much more holistic picture than some kind of transaction where I took your place and now you're cool. Men and women are created 
in the image of the living God. Glorious beings capable of unlocking potential of creation. I think, I was thinking about this in terms of music today. I had coffee uh, with Keith Thomas, who, remember Rachel Knutson, it's her new husband. They got married last year, and he's a professional cellist. And so he's in a concert right now, actually, at Mount Baker Theater. And uh, when I was praying for him before we leaving, I was just thinking of how, you know, God created all, all things, and he called them good. He did not call them perfect. John Stackhouse says, you take an acorn, and it is good, but it is not perfect. A perfect acorn is an oak tree that produces more acorns, right? So, so God created a good creation, but like, here's the air, and it's really good. But when you take a cello that's handcrafted in the wood, and you, the, it's strung right, and it's in tune, and the bow crosses the string just so, the vibrations change the airwaves. They unlock the potential of just benign good air and they make it something beautiful. That's what we're created to be. These glorious beings that, that are, are put in the Garden of Eden, this good creation, but that we unlock potential and, and make beauty sub-creators with God. I love it. We're created to be reflections of God's glory. His design is to make himself known through us. Now, not only our ancestors, Adam and Eve always get a bad rap, but all of us, every single one of us has rebelled against God. We've incurred this sin debt. We have a spiritual death sentence on our heads, and we are, every one of us, enslaved to sin. We are broken images of God. And you and I, no matter how hard we try, if you drive a hybrid or not, we break creation. And we do some great things too, but we break creation. And a robust atonement theology says that Jesus came not only to forgive, but to rescue and to make whole. Ephesians 2 talks about this and uses recreation language when speaking about salvation. Now we're not just forgiven from stuff, but we're made new for stuff, to be made whole in God's image. And that means you and I are saved for something. The church exists to reflect the God life, to be an example of God's kingdom. Sin, forgiveness, Jesus, the cross. It's not mostly about just us being in trouble or not. It's not just us about being saved or not. It's about life and living as the community of Jesus. When we fall short of this, when we see our world dying because of wars and greed and policies that we are probably supporting through the decisions we make or don't make, and that's not like to make us feel all guilty. It's just, what a complex world we live in. I buy this product. I think it's a good one. I'm butterfly effect. I'm screwing somebody else up somewhere. I mean, it's just, we're so entwined in messing things up. And when we, when we really look at that, what we're called to be, this glorious thing, and what we actually are, well, it ought to cause us to mourn from time to time in a healthy way. Jesus said, after all, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And I would argue that until we mourn for the world's brokenness and for our culpability in that brokenness, we won't really be emotionally invested enough to change. We won't have the drive to make a sustained difference. We can't really long for the kingdom of God to come 
if we accept the status quo of our broken world. If we're not truly broken for our brothers and sisters who are caught up in sin, we won't care enough to pray for them. We won't care enough to take a risk and speak the truth in love. We won't do what needs to be done in, able, in order to help point them to wholeness. And if you and I don't mourn our own sin, we won't really have compassion, not really, on other people. This idea of mourning as a church over corporate sin and individual sin is as old as the church itself. We have orders of service for everything in the church. Communion, baptism, marriages, funerals, common occurrences in the church. We have services of healing, prayer. We have services of lament. A few summers ago, we did that with the Psalms of Lament. And we have a service of repentance and reconciliation. It's right in our covenant worship book. And I pull bits and pieces out of it sometimes on Sundays, but sometimes I don't always tell you what I'm doing. And I thought tonight we would do a little part of it together to kind of end this message time. What we're going to do is um, just pray a prayer of confession, a corporate togetherness prayer of confession. And then we're going to transition to a time of healing prayer. And Joan, I'll, I'll prompt you to come up when we're ready for that. Uh, once a month what we do is we recognize that God is the God who hears and answers prayer. So when we're done with the message time, we're going to have a couple people up here praying. Some music will be playing. And you can use that time to pray where you're at. You can pray together where you're at. Or you can come forward if you'd like uh, to be anointed with oil and have hands laid on you for a physical um, thing that you've got going on, an emotional wound. Maybe it's something in the message or uh, something you just want to confess or get off your chest. This would be uh, a great follow-up for that. Our prayer of repentance and reconciliation begins with a prayer. Descend upon our hearts, Spirit of God, for our wills are weak and we need your grace. Our spirits are anxious and we need your forgiveness. Our minds are confused and we need your truth. Our emotions are bruised and we need your comfort. Our very being is broken, and we need your healing. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Ian is going to put the prayer of confession up. This is one that we've done uh, quite a few times together. Holy God, maker of all, have mercy on us. Jesus Christ, servant of the poor, have mercy on us. Holy Spirit, breath of life, have mercy on us. Lead us in silence as we confess our faults and admit our frailty. Let's take a moment of silent confession now.
hear these confessions of sin. I want to lead with uh, asking your forgiveness, and uh, you can follow along here. Um, Before God and with the people of God, I confess my brokenness to the ways I wound my life, the lives of others, and the life of the world. God forgive you, and Christ renew you, and the Spirit enable you to grow in love. Amen.